HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Wides, your host, your creator and host. So now that I'm into my third year, as of this week, of post-full-time teaching life, this past week was the second anniversary of me leaving my full-time job. Yay! But now that I'm in this beginning of this third year, I've had to find other ways to generate income for myself. You know, I don't have that steady weekly paycheck anymore. Girls got to hustle, got to figure things out. And um, luckily for me, unlike the majority of New Yorkers, my monthly overhead isn't like theirs. I don't I don't have a three thousand dollar a month rent, which is the average rent in the city these days, because. I moved to Brooklyn from Manhattan 20 years ago. 20 years ago this spring, I moved to Brooklyn from living in various teenier and teenier Manhattan apartments. And I rented for very, very cheap for a little while. And then I bought my apartment for literally pennies. Like, you could count the pennies. Not, well, maybe the nickels that I bought my apartment for. Like, so cheap, I'm not even going to say. But it's now worth like 12 times what I paid for it, okay? And I mean, you know, I'm not bragging, but let's just say I can retire on the sale of the apartment in just a few more years as long as the market holds and there's no major terrorist attacks or a giant tsunami doesn't roll down Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. I'm going to be okay. And, you know, not to brag or boast or anything, but um, I'm really psyched that hedge fund guys and bankers and lawyers are filling up 
my old converted, the factory loft building that was oh, once filled with artists and writers and teachers and all kinds of interesting people. Um, no, I'm not really psyched. That was sarcasm. I'm actually really horrified at what's happened to my once kind of funky, low-rent, sleepy neighborhood. And I don't really need to shop daily at Barney's or Lululemon or Urban Outfitters. Thank you very much. I mean, that's why I left Manhattan in the first place. And there's no place to get like a slice of pizza or a new mop handle anymore in my neighborhood. If I want $100 yoga pants, all over the place. Custom perfume, custom bridal, anywhere you want to go. A fucking, oops, mop handle. Sorry. (laughs) You're out of luck. But I am pretty psyched about the return on my investment, I have to say, you know. But, you know, back then, 20 years ago, oh, sure, everybody laughed when I told them I was buying that place and said, Brooklyn, why would you ever want to move to Brooklyn? Why would you ever leave Manhattan? Hmm. Well, who's laughing now, my friends? Hmm? So anyway, in my not-so-fully-employed lifestyle these days, I mean, I still work I still work, just not the grueling hours I used to. But there's a different pattern to my work day. It's not the everyday shuffle onto the subway at 7 a.m. and get home at 10 p.m. life of before. It's, it's way better than that. The big job, the big moneymaker, uh, not big, but, you know, the primary one is consulting. I'm working on a couple different restaurant projects. I have two going on right now, which I can't really talk about. But as soon as I can, you all will be the first million or so people to know about it, of course. And the other job, one of the other jobs, is trying to make it in voiceover and commercial acting, which I've been doing for a while, in which I've been very, very successful at getting lots of auditions. I got signed with a big agency, and I'm happy about that. And I go on a lot of auditions, and I'm happy about that, but... Going on those auditions doesn't seem to be generating any income. I don't get it. Even though I show up right on time at my auditions and I do a really good job, nobody's paying me to go on all the auditions, which I kind of don't understand. I thought that was the job. And then, of course, another thing I'm doing is teaching yet again, but somewhere else other than my former large culinary school employer in a much smaller school called Home Cooking New York. And... I'm also working privately in the homes of the obscenely wealthy people of New York who seem to be proliferating like bunnies these days. I'm private chefing, basically, for a family. I teach privately, too. So once a week, and I also, by the way, have this incredible idea, entrepreneurial, micro-business, artisanal product idea, which I'm not going to tell you about until the end of the show. I'm going to keep you waiting for my incredible micro entrepreneurial artisanal Brooklyn cottage industry idea that I'll do a Kickstarter for because I need about a hundred million dollars for it. But we'll get to that at the end of the show. So, but anyway, once a week or when this particular family I work for isn't, you know, jetting off to Switzerland or Aspen or somewhere, I go to the Greenwich village townhouse of a very nice family, nice people, with three teenage sons, and I cook food for them to take on their weekends to their country house in Connecticut, and also enough food to get them through the beginning of the week. Like, I sort of cook for three to five days, and then during the rest of the week, their nanny cooks. Okay, so I come in, the chef, 22 years of experience cook, then the nanny cooks. Or at least at least she puts food, food-based products originally food-based products, through various heating processes and calls it cooking. 
Okay, that's, that's what she does. I come in and cook. That's what she does. She's from Iowa. Now, no offense to Iowa. I have a new, very good friend in Iowa who I really like. She's a farmer. No offense to Iowa, okay? But I think it impacted her cooking ability. She is a terrible, terrible, terrible cook. Now, she herself has the eating habits and food palate of a 7th grade boy. And she's quite overweight and unhealthy and to show for it. So, because that's what you get when you're 40-ish and you eat like a 12-year-old boy. So, the nanny, the terrible cook, she eats things like frozen, pre-made sausage biscuit sandwiches for breakfast. And then she'll eat frozen, pre-made White Castle burgers for lunch. Not like going to White Castle, but like frozen pre-made White Castle burgers for lunch, which she'll eat with a bag of potato chips and a tub of onion dip and a two-liter bottle of diet soda. And then for dinner for the family, she'll put some random chunk of industrially produced meat into the slow cooker and dump some powdered onion soup mix or a bottle of salad dressing over it and then cook the crap out of it for a day or two and then feed it to the kids. Yes. Who, no wonder, are picky eaters because she feeds them shit all the time now while i'm there cooking all my real food my really nice delicious healthy real food she loves to talk to me talk 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 she's a big talker and she loves to talk to me while i'm there cooking my real actual delicious food well she's also watching endless reruns of what not to wear and say yes to the dress on tlc and playing games on her phone and snacking and she never shuts up and is constantly repeating her boring stories about growing up in iowa and i can't stand She's my kind of gal. Now, she is a total believer. Like, she completely believes, puts her total faith and trust in processed, packaged, and industrial food. Like, she's like a true believer. You know, like some people believe in Jesus. She believes in packaged food, processed food, industrial food. Now, the parents, the owners of this lovely town home, our mutual employers, are very wealthy and smart and quite entitled New Yorkers. One of them's a managing partner at Goldman Sachs. One is, I can't even say, big job, important job. They got bucks. And they themselves want to eat well, and they want their kids to eat better, which is why they hired me to cook for them. But when she cooks for them, it's like we're, they're, they, not we, they're all taken back to the school cafeteria at Millard Fillmore Junior High School circa 1980, because that's the kind of food she's serving them. Now, I don't get it, because we're in New York. She is surrounded by the best food in the world, the best available ingredients, with an unlimited budget for cooking for the family. Like, I think if she went to the store and said, I'm going to buy the organic eggs instead of the industrial eggs, the homeowners, the family, would not be like, oh, no, don't. They're a dollar more. Don't spend that. I don't think it would be an issue. And she makes things like boxed taco mix dinners with ground turkey that she puts in a nonstick pan and never like browns it and it gets all steamy and gross like ew what is that you're in the freaking west village of manhattan why are you making box taco dinners for these kids what are you doing she really can proudly wear the crown and sash of Miss Foodiness Queen 2015 because she also does things like she eats those 100 calorie NutraSweet yogurts in between her bags of chips and her plates of tater tots. And, oh yeah, did I also mention that she swills diet soda all day too? So while I'm there roasting broccoli and 
sauteing Brussels sprout hash and making them black bean soup and searing fish and making them like bolognese with grass-fed beef. She's heating up chicken nuggets and tater tots for them for lunch. Remember last week's episode about Bizarro World? Was that last week? I talked about everything being the opposite. I'm like the Superman of spinach land, trapped in a Walmart Supercenter snack aisle on the planet Tater Tot, I think. That's how it feels. Did you get that? The Superman of spinach land, trapped in the Walmart Supercenter snack aisle on the planet Tater Tot. I just had to say that again. Now, anyway, what I'm getting at here, because you know it always takes me a while to get to the point, but what I'm getting at here is that she isn't eating this way or feeding the kids this way because of economics, which would be a semi-legitimate reason. You know, like claiming that, oh, well, she can't afford to buy good food for them or they, you know, they won't give her the budget to buy good food for them, which is a very real and significant issue for millions of people around this country, although if they actually knew how to shop and cook, it wouldn't be such an issue, but that's a whole other story. They can they can afford more than good food. They can afford the best food, this family. And I'm sure they don't limit her in what she spends on food. And often she orders in Chinese takeout for lunch on their dime. So um, I don't think it's a financial issue. And that, like I just said, very real and important issue for millions of people in this country is affordability of food. But I have discussed that here before on other shows. And maybe we'll get to it again soon, but not today. But it's certainly not an issue in this particular zip code where they're living, or in this household. It's not an affordability issue or an availability issue. It's that she seemingly does it because she wants to. Like, it's out of spite. It's like it's like her way of sticking it to the man by feeding the man's kids frozen mac and cheese and tater tots. Like, oh, I'm going to stick it to the man by feeding his kids crap. <laughs> Which is what she fed to them one day recently when they were home from school frozen mac and cheese and tater tots well i'm there steaming the broccoli and sauteing the brussels sprouts and searing the fish now i don't understand why our mutual employer stands for it because if i had their resources i would hire me to cook for me for the entire week i would pay myself a lot to cook for myself for the week yeah no i'd hire someone else probably and i would insist that the kids eat my food instead of her craptastic foodiness filled buffets i mean if you're rich enough to eat whatever you like why would you choose to eat that? The stuff that she serves. I don't get it. And she knows better. She does. She's not stupid. She's not intellectual or worldly, but she's not a stupid person. She watches a lot of TV. She must know. But I really think it's some kind of spiteful feeding tactic. I think it's some kind of passive-aggressive way of getting back at her employer somehow. I do it by drinking all their good tea and eating all their snacks, which I'll get to shortly. She does it by feeding their children terrible food, I think. Or maybe it is just the way she likes to eat, like I said before, which is as if she's a 13-year-old boy. And so it all works out because their sons are 11, 12, and 14. So she's right there in the middle of the pack. And, you know, talk about your codependence. They all sit around like a bunch of junkies eating their tater tots all afternoon. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. And this one's called The Crying Blues by the California Honey Drops. This is Heritage Radio Network. 
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real, a cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food on Heritage Radio Network with me, Erica Weitz. So the reason I'm bringing all this up, why, what am I getting to here? Yeah, it's always into the second segment before I really get to it. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because of the salt. The salt, you ask? Yes, the salt. The over 100, 100 million tons of salt that's been dumped on the roads of New York this winter. A hundred million tons of salt. I think that was the number. This morning on our local NPR news affiliate, WNYC, a station that I've been on a couple times, they had a guy from the state DOT talking about road salt and the problems with road salt. And that I think that was the number he gave, a hundred million tons throughout the whole state, not just in the city, but covering the whole state, a hundred million tons of salt has been used in New York State this winter alone. That's a lot of salt. That's salty. As far as the actual amount used in the city, I don't know the number. He didn't break it down. I'm sure I could find it out. But based on the sparkly, hard pretzel crust-like surfaces of the city sidewalks for the past, oh, I don't know, eight weeks, I would say the number's pretty high. So much salt has been put down. So much salt. It crunches when you walk. And, you know, not just like a light sprinkling, like, you know, like a high-end chef gently finishing a a dish with a dusting of flaky imported sea salt, just wafting a little dust. No! More like what happens in the boxed onion soup mix factory or the pre-made sausage biscuit breakfast sandwich factory when they pour on the salt. A gigantic pouring on of the salt. A barrage of salt. Piles of it just dumped randomly all over the sidewalks, not gently sprinkled or scattered in an even way, just like handfuls of salt just chucked down everywhere, crunching underfoot, bleaching out the cement, melting into the snow runoff and into the sewers and making its way into our drinking water and turning our freshwater rivers and waterways brackish and saline. It's bad. Totally messing up the local water ecosystems. And oh yeah, did I also mention staining my very expensive leather boots, which I bought this year because I realized I can retire even sooner than later on the profits from my apartment. Because remember, I was willing to move to Brooklyn 20 years ago. We mentioned that before. Yeah, that's all. Now on that NPR report, (coughs) sorry, this morning, the guy from the state DOT said that so much salt has been used to combat this awful winter, that local drinking water, drinking water in some local municipalities, the drinking water supply, has the same levels as, wait for it, what do you think I'm going to say here, the same levels as Diet Coke. What? Wait a minute, what, Diet Coke, that's a really weird comparison. I thought he was going to say something like, the water is as salty as canned soup or pickle juice or something we think of as overtly salty. Not something that's artificially sweetened. I don't think of Diet Coke as salty, although I don't think I've tasted Diet Coke in at least 
25 years. But yes, it does have quite a bit of sodium in it because you got to give it some flavor and you got to balance out that sickly sweetness of the NutraSweet somehow. And you have to mask the chemical taste of it too. So salt is really good at all those things. But it was such a weird, odd comparison. As salty as diet coke. He also went on to say that some towns in the area have had to issue a health warning about the water for diabetics and people on extremely low sodium diets to avoid drinking the local water for a while until the salt is flushed out by the spring rains and that they should instead stick with Diet Coke instead of water because the Diet Coke has less salt. No, he didn't really say that. That's just me. Less salt in Diet Coke than water. What a mess. What a mess. Maybe those people who are diabetic or on the low-sodium diets, are in that predicament because they eat like Monica the nanny. Oop, I gave away her name. Maybe they should all hang out with her. It seems like they all eat the same way. He then went on to discuss alternatives to dumping pure salt all over the land, as we do. Like in Europe, where the dumping of salt all over the roads is banned. And they, instead of using salt, use a combination of sand and gravel on the roads, which I realized when I was in Iceland a few weeks ago, there was gravel bits. They use crushed up lava there, which is kind of cool. Or places that instead spray a brine solution on the road before the snow comes. Like they're making like gigantic, you know, batches of smoked salmon or something, and they brine everything down first, which is the image that comes to my head. But they spray this brine solution on the roads before the snow comes so that the roads are just salty enough so that the snow won't stick. That makes sense to me. And then he mentioned these areas out near the Delaware Water Gap, which if you don't know where that is, it's this place between Pennsylvania and, uh, it's like at the end of Pennsylvania. (laughs) It's like where the Delaware River and Pennsylvania and Maryland and something, just look on a map. But it has to do with our water system and it's really important. In those areas near the Delaware Water Gap, it's it's a major reservoir for drinking water for the whole mid Atlantic region. Basically, they can't take the risk of turning that crucial and precious water into a salty Diet Coke puddle. So they use a combination of beet juice, pickle brine, and potato juice, which they get as a byproduct of vodka production on their local roadways, which I thought was fascinating and a good way to use up the waste products of production, agricultural production, because, you know, food waste in this country is a huge problem. And if you have millions of gallons of, let's say, pickle brine or beet juice or potato juice, what do you do with it? Well, you could just dump it in the water, but then you mess up the water, so put it on the roads. I guess it's a really good solution. I don't know. You need to investigate that. Now, it made me want to get in my car right away and drive out there and just lick the roads because I really want to know what the roads taste like with the potato juice and pickle juice and beet juice. Like, I'm so intrigued. I want to, I want to lick the road. It's just this thing with me. But I was wondering if the beet juice stains the snow pink or the the roads pink. Like, does the whole place look like, you know, like a big Hello Kitty murder assassination plot went afoul and stained the whole place pink? I don't know. And then I realized that they're probably using sugar beet juice, right? Probably, right? Because sugar beets aren't red. They're white. And there's probably a lot more sugar beet juice around left over from sugar production as opposed to Regular beet juice, which could just be sold as beet juice. There's no byproduct of beet juice except the the beet pulp. And I think they use that to make natural red dye instead of using, you know, red dye number whatever that people are trying not to use anymore. 
as I mentioned in last week's show, Bizarro World, when I talked about food coloring. So I realized that what I need is an intern to do some research for me on this. Because these are the kind of things that, you know, I don't have the time to look up. I'm busy. I have a lot of part-time jobs, and I need some help on this. So anybody who's listening who wants to be my research intern, get in touch with me. I used to have one years ago, Belinda, but she went off to work for some clean water organization, believe it or not. The irony. Oh, wait a minute. I guess I could call her. She'd probably know. And the salt isn't just messing up the water. It's messing up the water. But it's also blowing up the manholes. Yes, salty manholes are a big problem here in New York City this winter. And that's not like a gay joke or anything, okay? Salty manholes. It's for real. Because, in fact, one of those salty manholes blew up on my block last week and sent an electrical fire fireball 20 feet into the sky right near my house and blew a hole in the road 30 feet from where my car was parked. Now, the car is fine. Thank you very much for asking. It's fine. It didn't get hurt. Nobody got hurt. But there was a giant hole blown in the road and a raging electrical inferno shooting up from underground like hell had come to the surface because all those piles of road salt washed down into the manholes and, you know, salt corrodes things and it corrodes the hundred plus year old wiring that's all down there in a big tangled mess. And it starts electrical fires. And it's happening all over the city. Apparently there have been 1,200 electrical fire manhole explosions this year alone. And it does this every time we have a bad winter. So it's made a big mess of my neighborhood traffic-wise. And there were like 100 emergency vehicles parked up and down the block. And even more than that, guys in hazmat suits seemingly doing nothing but staring down the hole for hours. But even worse than all of that, it knocked out my internet for two days. Yeah, two days. I felt like a junkie. I felt like I was, you know, suddenly cut off from my Diet Coke or something. Do you know how hard it is to go without internet for two days and without cable? But I don't have cable. I just stream, but I couldn't stream either. So that first night when it happened at dinner, Adam and I just, we just sat there silently looking at each other's distressed faces. I mean, what were we supposed to do at dinner? Talk? It was bad. But, you know, salt isn't all bad, of course. Salt is good. We need salt to survive. It's crucial to human. All living things need salt. We all need it. Salt is not a bad thing. This whole idea of low-sodium diets for health reasons is another one of those little tidbits of bad science, bad information leftovers from another era. Bad, 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 like I talked about last week on Bizarro World, that we should really just throw out with the salty bath water. Because it's not the salt that we put on our food. Of course, it's the loads of salt added to processed food. We know this. The canned soups, the bottled dressings, the commercially made bread, the frozen pre-made everything, the cereal, the cookies, anything. If it's in a package or a box or a can or it's on a shelf or it's in a freezer and it can stay there for a long time, it's full of salt. Way, way, way too much salt. Why? Because salt's an excellent preservative. It's why people have been using salt for hundreds of thousands of years to preserve their food, to make kimchi and pickles and cured salmon and jerky and all kinds of stuff. Salt. We need it for that. If it's in freshly made food, food that's in its whole form and is salted for taste and seasoning or preservation, it's fine. We all know that, right? We all know this. We've talked about this before, right? Yes? Hello? Let me just break it down for you, though. Even though you, my listeners, already know this stuff, let's just break it down. So here we go. If Monica the nanny serves it, it's bad. 
and has bad salt in it. If Erica, the private chef, makes it, it's good. See, simple, understandable educational concepts brought to you today by Let's Get Real because we care about you. Now, the last time I was at the house, the house of nuggets and tots, that's what I'm going to call it from now on, the house, Shea Nugget Tot, the house of nuggets and tots. It was a few weeks ago because the family's been traveling a lot lately. One of the sons is in Switzerland for the winter and ski school. Yeah, I know. And they've been going away. and blah, blah. So I haven't been there on a, like a regular schedule for a few months. I usually go weekly, but it's been very erratic. And predictably, last time I was there, as we watched endless episodes of What Not to Wear, well, she watched What Not to Wear, and she droned on and on about her childhood in Iowa, and I tried to secretly listen to This American Life on my phone with an earpiece, but I couldn't hear it over her, I suddenly felt the need for my afternoon cuppa, you know, my cup of tea. You know I love my tea, big tea junkie, and so I generally have a big cup in the morning and then a big cup every day around 3 o'clock. And I usually carry tea bags with me because you never know if you're going to find good tea. And if I'm somewhere with either no tea or bad tea, then I have good tea. So Monica the nanny goes, she leaves to go pick up the kids from their private school, which is a 15-minute walk away, by the way. And on such which walk she's supposed to walk and bring their overweight dog so the dog can get some exercise, which actually they could both really benefit from. But she always leaves the dog home and make, takes a cab instead. And I'm not supposed to tell anybody, but I just told all of you. So Monica leaves the house, and so I make myself my cup of tea. Now, along with the tea, I was really craving something sweet because that happens to all of us. And you would think this being a very wealthy New York City household, there'd be all kinds of delicious little tidbits and chocolates and precious cookies and macarons, all that stuff that rich people like to give each other as gifts all the time. They're always giving each other stuff. Why don't they give it to me? I only know this from working in other houses of a similar income level. They're all always just passing around the fancy chocolates and the jam and all of this stuff. Well, if someone's given these guys any of that stuff, um, they're hiding it somewhere because there's never anything good around to snack around for me to sneak snack, which is what I call it, sneak snack. And I was really jonesing for something to go with my tea. And there in the pantry was a bag of chips. Ahoy! Because, you know, there's an exclamation point. Chips. Ahoy! Soft and chewy version. Now, I haven't eaten the chips Ahoy in decades. I can't even remember the last time. But I did remember liking them as a kid, chips Ahoy. And I was kind of tired and kind of depressed and really annoyed by you-know-who. And that's a lethal combination for me, so I needed some sugar. So I tried one of the soft and chewy chips Ahoy. Now, I probably would have enjoyed licking the road by the Delaware Water Gap more because this thing tasted so little like a chocolate cookie chocolate chip cookie to me and so much like chemicals that I couldn't even finish it. And for me to not finish a cookie, that's a big deal. I abhor food waste and I'll eat something simply in order to not throw it away, which is kind of ridiculous. Although really like the idea of eating it and making more poop waste from it is better than putting it in the garbage waste. I don't know. See, this is where I, I need an intern to tell me these things, which is worse, producing more poop or producing more garbage. I don't know. But I couldn't eat this chemical imposter shaped like a cookie. I couldn't finish it. It just did, it didn't taste like food to me. It didn't taste like a baked item. It didn't taste like a cookie. It just didn't taste right. You know, it didn't taste like a chewy chocolate chip cookie should taste to me. I swear it tasted like chemicals. Now, 
It wasn't like it was accidentally exposed to the cleaning supplies because those are kept in a tightly organized separate closet by Olga, the tough Polish housekeeper, who, by the way, is actually a very good real food cook of the old school, very simple, heavy manner, and who secretly hates the nanny and likes to gossip with her about me. No, they tasted just like fake. That was the flavor. Fake. Fake flavor. Fake chocolate. Fake vanilla. Fake cookie flavor. Fakey fake faked flavor. And guess who they belong to? Miss Iowa herself, of course. Now, anyway, back to the salt because we're running out of time. As I said, I'm a big believer in the power of salt. It brings out flavors and food balances, bitterness and acidity. Salt makes food taste like food, especially in chocolate chip cookies. You need salt. And it makes real unprocessed food even more delicious. This is old news. I have nothing new to say about it. And we need salt as humans for survival. As I said, really, put someone on a diet that's extremely low in sodium, and guess what? They can die. It happens. You can mess up someone's heart really bad by going too low on the salt. How about put someone on a diet of real food that's not from packages or cooked by a nanny from Iowa, and then let's see what happens to them. They would thrive. Eternal life, probably. But anyway, gloriously, the temperature hit 50 degrees yesterday, and so all the snow is starting to melt, which is dissolving all the salt, and it's going away. Now, even though it's dissolving and it's making its way into the river and into our drinking water, it still means that spring is coming. You can feel it. You can smell it. You know spring is coming in New York when you can smell the subway. It stays cold enough all winter to keep the smell down, and then the temperature goes above 50, and suddenly the smell molecules get all excited, and you can smell it. But you can feel it, and you can see it. I've seen the tips of sprouting spring flower bulbs peeking up from the muck. It won't be long now. It won't be long now. Spring is almost here. And I have an awesome idea for padding my freelance income. As I mentioned early in the show, my idea for an artisanal entrepreneurial micro business based in Brooklyn funded by Kickstarter. I'm going to start scraping up all that crusty salt from the street and from my boots and my shoes and my car tires and the edge of the road. And I'm going to package that salt in little mason jars and I'm going to tie them with handmade ribbon and twine and I'm going to call it artisanal Brooklyn salt. And I'm going to sell it to hipster shoppers at West Elm and the Brooklyn Flea and make a fortune. And then I'm going to sell my apartment even sooner and get out of this crazy town and move somewhere that's so much more sane. I don't know. Maybe Iowa? Who knows? So anyway, if you don't want to eat salty shit and you don't want to eat what the nanny cooks, you better keep on listening. Let's get real. The cooking show about finding eating food here on Heritage Radio Network with me. Because if you don't, I can't be held responsible for you eating fakey fake cookies that's just you know we've been together too long we're all out of time we'll see you next week thanks to jack in the control room thanks to ben kaplan for the awesome theme music see you next week thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org you can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the itunes store by searching heritage radio network You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.